Fascinating Jobs Podcast. I'm your host, Mackenzie Wilson. On this episode of the podcast, I'm sitting down with Nina Jacindo, a people operations professional. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen so that way we can grow our community. And with that, let's get into episode number 13 with Nina. So hello guys and welcome back. I'm here with Nina and how are you doing today, Nina? Uh, I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. So would you just like to give a brief introduction to yourself and what you do? Sure. Uh, so my name is Nina Jacinto. Um, I live in the Bay Area of California and currently I am the Vice President of People and Culture at an e-commerce startup called Drop. Wow, that sounds great. So could you explain a little bit more about what your career path has looked up, looked like up until this point? Sure. It's been twisty turny. <laughs> um, so I graduated from college. I went to uh, school at Pomona College. I graduated in 2008. And when I was ready to really dive into a job search, um, you know, we got hit by the recession in 2009. And I already didn't really have a sense for what I wanted to do. So I sort of stumbled into my first part of my career path, which was uh, grant writing for a nonprofit based out of Oakland. And, you know, I was an English major in college, so I had, you know, sort of the writing chops and had an interest in sort of social sector causes and being able to work at a company that had a mission that I felt was, you know, compelling and interesting. And so my first full-time role was at a company, a nonprofit called Wardrobe for Opportunity. They're based out of Oakland, California. And then the rest of my career path has sort of been um, a combination of just feeling like I hit my ceiling at the, at the organization that I was at and sort of outgrowing my role and wanting to take the parts of my roles that I really liked and turn them into my next job. So the way I explain that is, you know, I loved parts of grant grant writing and grant writing often turns into a career in fundraising. But what I learned very quickly is that I don't like asking people for money. Mm-hmm. So my grant manager job turned into an opportunity at another organization where I was doing grants management and a lot of sort of people operations work, goal setting, management, things like that. That role sort of turned into a role around risk mitigation and people operations. That role turned into a human resources, risk mitigation, people operations job, which uh, landed me in my current role where I'm really focused entirely in people operations. So what I sort of found over the course of 10 years is, which, wow, 10 years is a lot, um, (laughs) is that what I loved the most about all of my jobs was putting systems and processes and policies in place, but not just for the sake of it, but to really make sure that the people who are working wherever they're working are really content and satisfied with their job. And that is sort of what the people operations field is. It's the systems and compliance of payroll and, you know, someone's moving to a new state and you need to file registrations and it's time for a performance evaluation cycle, but combined with, you know, what does it look like to have really engaged employees? What kinds of values does a company need to have a really great culture? What should our recruiting strategy be to bring in the best talent? 
And those were the things that I kept enjoying over and over again. And so that's sort of how I stumbled into the work that I do full time now. Um, I will say alongside uh, the work, actually, one of my favorite parts of my role is really around how much you get to work one on one with people and sort of triage issues with them, talk them through challenges with their work. Um, and I actually also do private career coaching on the side because the part of my job that I love doing the most is something I wanted to build off of. So I also get to do that on the side, which is really nice. Wow. Yeah, that does sound super interesting. And I think that was like a really good overview of what um, it looks like to be in HR, because I feel like, you know, most of our first experience with an HR rep might be like on the office or, you know, not exactly, like, not exactly like a realistic representation of what the job is actually like. Sure. So, yeah. So how did you decide that you wanted to go into HR? Yeah. Um, you know, I think just based on kind of when you look at my resume, it sort of found me. And even five years ago, if you had been like, Nina, don't you want a career in HR? I mean, I had a lot of the perceptions that I think most folks have about human resources, which is they're sort of the people that police you at work and they're like the ones that remind you about the dress code and the ones that tell you about benefits and the ones that like you go to when you don't understand how your insurance works or when there's an issue with your paycheck or when you want to file a complaint about your manager. Like all of the stuff that's fundamentally not that fun. And I never wanted to do any of that. I'm not, you know, I mean, that's great for some people. And I think it's, it can be really interesting if you like heads down detail oriented work but i was like well that's not going to be for me because i'm i'm not necessarily interested in process just to be like these are the rules these are the rules that protect the company which is what a lot of hr policy is i wanted to think about well how do you support people at work you know beyond just here is the here is the policies we have for you and what's been great about the HR industry is that in the last few years, a lot of jobs have sort of expanded their HR roles to be this larger people operations field. And the people operations role, which is kind of the type of role that I've that I've had recently, uh, like my role right now isn't VP of human resources, right? It's VP of people and culture. And even though that includes all of the HR functions, the reason why it's called people and culture is because it allows me to think about, um, you know, how do we want to work as a company? What are the kinds of things that leadership or managers need to be doing better so that people are even more excited to come to work every day? Um, you know, you get the chance to not just think about, well, what are the policies and the compliance processes and the regulations, but you get to think about well, what's the design that the company needs that will best support its team. And that was work that I was always interested in. I just don't think I always knew it was called people operations work. You know, I always thought it was called like operations and some sort of HR. And now, luckily enough, we kind of have, we have a field that includes all of the different things. So there's sort of something for everyone. You know, if you like recruiting, people operations can be a good place for you. If you like compliance and, and just, you know, drafting policy and getting more into the legal risk side, there's a lot of opportunity for that. And if you're interested in coaching and working with people and culture building and change management, then people operations can also be a really great field. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's like really great how you kind of explain it as like multiple different roles, because it seems like there's a lot more to just like the one side, like you said that you 
thought of. So um, you kind of mentioned how like you're writing policies and things like that that will help make the work culture better at the company. So how do you like kind of, I guess, like start to think about like what the policies might be? Like will employee like come to you about something or do you kind of find it out on your own? That's a great question. So from my experience, I've worked at generally smaller companies, right? Um, I'm not working at companies that have a ton of layers of bureaucracy. They don't have 20,000 employees. Those company cultures create policy with multiple teams. Um, They have their own processes. But my experience on policy for smaller companies tends to be that there's kind of two layers. There's the rules and policies you have to have because it's the law, like you need to have certain language. For example, if your office is in San Francisco, like ours was, um, you have to have policy that's very particularly written for when someone wants to take paid family leave or if someone has someone they need to take care of who's sick. It's not an option for us to have that policy. We absolutely have to have that policy. So that part's easier because you kind of, someone gets to tell you what policies to have and you sort of, you usually work with a legal team and you get things drafted. But the exciting policy stuff and the stuff that you're asking about is sort of based on a few things. It's based on, you know, uh, it's based on a lot of staff feedback um, over the course of time of what's working, what's not working. Sometimes you get feedback just with people meeting with you one-on-one. Sometimes you get feedback in things like an employee engagement survey that asks specific questions about what's working, what's not working. And then there's also best practices that you borrow from the field, right? So what kinds of policies have worked in the places that I've worked in before? What kinds of policies work at other companies like ours that we might wanna implement? So one example is developing a policy. Earlier this year, obviously with um, you know COVID, when in the Bay Area, we all went into shelter in place in March. So we effectively shut down our physical office overnight. And our company made a decision to move to full-time distributed remote work permanently so that we could take advantage of a lot of the things that remote work offers people, which is that they can live in, they don't have to just live in the Bay Area, which is often really expensive. They have the flexibility to travel. They have the flexibility to sort of uh, not deal with things like commutes and things like that. And part of making that shift, obviously, is that you're no longer communicating and interacting with your coworkers in an office. That creates a lot of opportunity for needing to create policy. You know, what are the expectations that we're gonna have at our company about what it means to show up to work when showing up to work is no longer, oh, hey, like so-and-so's at the office now, they're grabbing coffee, right? It's something else. So what are our policies about the tools that we use? What are the policies around something as simple as, let's say you are in San Francisco and you wanna move to Montana. Do we have a process for that? Can you just go? Does your salary look the same, even though you're moving somewhere that's way cheaper? What happens to your benefits? So those are the kinds of situations that come up where you're like, what's missing from our existing policies and our existing culture that we need to have an answer for so that all of our employees are treated equally if that situation happens to them? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you kind of provide a nice segue into the kind of next topic, which is like, how has being an HR professional um, like changed over the course of the pandemic? Like, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So um, again, I think generally most HR professionals are dealing with the realities of 
what happens when eventually their employees and their team need to come back to an office. Not everyone is going to be able to go permanently remote. And again, there are a lot of safety considerations to factor in. There is a lot of um, liability, health, and safety requirements that HR teams are figuring out um, to think about what happens when someone is entering an office when we're living in a world where there's a pandemic or there's no vaccine, right? So um, what's all the paperwork? What are the waivers people need to sign? Do, the, do people need to make adjustments to the sick time they provide? What happens if someone needs time off? How do you disclose information if someone tests positive when you're supposed to keep health information confidential, but you also want to let people know that there might have been an exposure? So that's what most HR professionals these days, I'd say, is in the U.S. particularly, are thinking about. Again, because we are a company that was fortunate enough to pivot to remote work pretty quickly, we don't have to think about what it looks like to return to an office and the safety precautions there. That's not as much of a priority. Our priority, and I think what's changed the most is, how do you keep people engaged who are used to hanging out together when they can no longer hang out together? Um, you know, in a lot of ways, Drop, the company that I'm at is has always had the culture of many startups, right? We, we used to do a lot of happy hour events. People would hang out after work a lot. We would do catered lunches. We would have a lot of activities at work so that people are working hard, but they're also playing hard, right? Now we can't offer any of that. And it's really hard to say, oh, hey, folks, let's do a happy hour on Zoom. Like the first time you do it, it's fine. And then the third time you're like, please stop inviting me to these. And so, we're figuring out how to keep people engaged during a really stressful time and a time where we can't assume that our staff are gonna ever see each other right now. And that has been a really big HR question that a lot of HR professionals have and that we're kind of all trying to figure out, right? Like, what are the best ways to keep staff engaged during a really hard year? And, and in a year where people are literally and figuratively more disconnected. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely agree. Like, and I think that this problem that you're describing about, like, you know, keeping people engaged and talking to each other doesn't only exist in the workplace, but also in school. I feel like our school's been mm -hmm. completely online. And so, um, but yeah, you're not like talking to people in the hallways or having side conversations or walking home from school with your friend, like, like similar things, how you described at, work. So yeah, I think that it has been a hard time. So um, yep. do you have any like strategies or programs that you've kind of implemented to try and like counteract this? Yeah, I mean, it's nothing really game changing, but I think some of the simple things have worked. One is to really just remind managers and remind the staff that it's a weird time. And it's a time that's very challenging. So if we can provide flexibility we want to provide it. You know, if you need time off because you're just caught in like doom scrolling the news, that's okay. <laughs> if you need to adjust your hours because you're, you know, you're managing childcare in a way that you weren't before, we'll figure something out. So it's not as fun, you know, as a lunch or a happy hour, but it's still a benefit that we can provide by giving people permission to be like, hey, it's okay if things look really different for a bit because the world is different. So we need to try to meet you where you're at and figure out a way for you to do your best work without your whole life being upended, right? 
So I think that's one thing that's helped. I think another thing that's helped for us in particular, and I, you know, I'm curious how this works with, with new students, but new employees who join this year is they have such a different experience, right? They don't get to meet anyone in the office. They could pretty much never talk to anyone really, unless you really make an effort to connect them with employees in every department, which is something we try to do so that they don't feel isolated because there's no real way for them to do the equivalent of like sitting at a table at lunch and being like, hey, can I join you? I'm new. And so that is another thing of making sure that any new employee come that comes in gets a lot of FaceTime virtually with not just their own team, but with every team at the company um, and at every level of the company. So that that way, you know, when they're using Slack or they're sending email, you know who they are. You're not like, who's this new person emailing me or contacting me? And I think the third thing is as much as it can be uh, counterintuitive or like annoying or strange, it is to keep like checking in with the people that you're used to seeing at work over Slack or over Zoom. Like I have my list of coworkers that, you know, I used to chat with a lot more in the office. And sometimes I'll just slack one of them and be like, hey, do you want to like have lunch over Zoom or do you want to just do you have a few minutes to chat? And we'll just sort of shoot the breeze and creating space like in meetings or even outside of meetings to just like talk about not work things makes a big difference because that's the thing that you miss the most when you're not in an office. Right. It's oh, watching TV shows and like, what did you think of season two of Unsolved Mysteries and like what's going on with your weekend and when you're remote and working it's really easy to forget about all of those things because you just don't have space for it you have to really intentionally make space so i revised all of the meetings that i have to include 10 minutes of basically small talk in the beginning where we're like we just all talk about our weekend and stuff and it's awkward the first few times because you're like why are you making me talk about this but what you realize is it's actually really important to build in that space Otherwise, we sort of forget that, like, we're people who have lives outside of work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, like, when you mentioned the, like, 10 minutes of, like, you know, like, just kind of free talking time during before meetings, like, that kind of reminds me, like, one of my teachers does a similar thing on our online classes. You know, we'll just talk about, like, you know, yeah. what's going on in our lives or what we're doing this weekend. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, a really nice way to start things. And, um, yeah, so I think that that seems like kind of a good solution. And I think that the solutions that you bring up kind of are applicable to everybody, you know, whether that's just like texting your friend that you haven't really seen in a while because of the pandemic or, you know, just like reaching out to someone else. So kind of segueing back to non-pandemic things, um, normally if you were actually going to work, um, what would a typical day at your job look like for you? Yeah, it looks actually pretty similar to my work day now, just with less like getting up and walking to break rooms or like going to someone's desk. Um, I usually have two kinds of days, uh, days that are really back to back meetings. I try to clump all of my meetings into a couple of days because I like having larger work blocks to really focus on projects and things that I'm working on. That's tough to do when you're like, I have a half an hour between these two meetings. So it's usually uh, the start of my day, I'll take a pass at Slack. That's where we do a lot of our communication is through our Slack tool. Uh, Go through messages, sort of identify if there's anything that's urgent that needs to be triaged. Same with email. I'll usually do a first pass at that. Then head into meetings that can include one-on-one meetings with my team. 
It can include meetings with other members of the executive leadership or just other scheduled meetings that come up. Maybe managers want to talk about their team. Maybe people just want space to be able to talk through challenges that they're having at work or outside of work. So I'll do meetings on that. And then it'll be sort of just heads down work on whatever sort of projects I'm working on. So for example, in January of this of next year, we're kicking off our performance evaluation process. So right now I'm working on thinking about, well, what's the best way to design our performance evaluation so that everyone has a really great review, that there's a lot of opportunity for feedback, um, but that the process isn't so overwhelming that managers don't wanna do it. So I'm kind of thinking about the design of that now so that by the time we get into January, everyone already knows about it, they know about the process, they're ready to go. Another thing that comes up, for example, is at the end of every calendar year, most companies are in the process of doing a benefits renewal, figuring out health insurance, dental insurance, what kind of insurance they wanna offer and what is it gonna cost them with the health insurance companies. So that's usually when we meet with our insurance broker and they say, this is how the rates and packages are gonna look for next year. Do you wanna make any changes, things like that. So some of it is more creative, like you know, designing a process and some of it is more tactical, like we need to think about the budgetary implications of our health insurance for next year. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That seemed, I think that was like a really good overview of what a day looks like. And I like how you kind of emphasize that like your job really mixes like doing more creative work with also doing some, some, um, like different, like, you know, more budgetary or like more definitely like necessary work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what differences have you noticed in the like industry in general, what, from when you first started until now? I do think one of the big differences I touched on before, which is that the field of HR has sort of evolved and modified into this larger realm that allows for more people operations, more culture related work, um, not just the typical HR policy compliance component. And I think that flexibility has been really incredible because it allows people to be more creative, to think more about business strategy and not stay so siloed in one particular area of an employee's experience. I think the second big difference, and this is just very much the result of this year, is that, you know, five years ago, the idea that you could take a day to work from home was like the biggest perk of a job ever. And I used to have corporate friends who were like, wow, you get to work from home one day a week? That's incredible. I've always had really flexible work environments because that's the kind of work environment I've always thrived in. I've been fortunate enough to find jobs that really support that. But there are many jobs where the idea of working from home is just completely unacceptable. And this year that changed. And now all of these jobs that used to be like, no, you can never work from home are suddenly finding ways to make it work. And I think that is really incredible because it really changes the opportunity for the company in terms of where they can hire and how they can hire. And it also, I don't know, I think it just, I don't, I'm not a proponent of feeling like the only way you can do work is if you're in an office. I think that's a really outdated norm. And I think it's true for a very small subsection of jobs. And I think the idea of managers having to trust their staff more to do more to do their work because they're not sort of in the office and they can't just like lean over and see them at their desk is an incredible opportunity. I think we should trust people at work to do their jobs and not focus so much on how many hours they're in the office, but more what are they producing? And I think that's been a big shift of just like how much more comfortable people are working from home and managing people who work from home. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that 
that's like a really good point there that um that like people who like previously like didn't really work from home but now are having to and you're having to find like all these new ways and I feel like even with jobs where like you know you could like should have been there before like we see doctors doing like telehealth visits and Mm -hmm. something that's been totally new that I guess could definitely be online in future so yeah so what would be like one challenge of your job yeah um I would say the biggest challenge of my job is telling people they don't have a job anymore. Um, you know, uh, that is a big part of HR work is sort of managing any kind of staffing transitions. And while you get to do the great thing by like hiring people and bringing people on board, sometimes you have to downsize companies. Sometimes your business changes and it impacts certain roles at the company. Um, that is something that I have done, uh, in my career more than once. And it, doesn't really get easier. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to tell people that it's not because of them, but that the, the needs of the company have changed, and they just no longer have a job. You know, that's a really, you really feel for people who don't see it coming, or and even if they do see it coming, it's still, it's hard to have that conversation. You know, you feel for the people who are impacted, you feel for the managers, you feel for the staff who are friends with them and are like, why is this person being laid off? It's just, it's a tough, it's a tough situation. That's definitely not the part of my job that I like. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally get that. And I think that like, it has been difficult because especially with so many people getting laid off because of the pandemic, but hopefully that's not a part of your job you've had to experience too much over the past year. Yeah, it's it's been okay. And I think that the, the advantage, not the advantage, but I think the way that you approach those situations in HR is sort of, the key is not that someone's going to be like, this is great. It's that they feel like they were treated with respect and that they were treated kindly. And you do hear a lot of stories about people who lose their jobs and they just feel like, you know, their company was really rude to them or their HR team was, wasn't transparent. They weren't kind. They didn't give them time to respond and creating space where someone can really process that I think is a really important part of the work because they're because it's so difficult because it's such a difficult time for them um and being able to do that well i think is really important even though it's also hard yeah definitely so i think kind of transitioning to a more positive aspect of your job do you have a favorite project you've worked on or like favorite career story i think a lot of my career stories are mostly just around like loving your team and loving the people that you work with and just having like really great moments around that but i think In terms of my favorite parts of my work, I do love creating and rolling out new process. And I also really love training managers. Those are probably my two favorite parts of work. I've talked a lot about the policy process stuff. So I'll, you know, I'll give examples around managers where, you know, you meet first time managers, you meet managers who are younger in their careers, they're managing people for the first time, they really want to do a good job. And they inevitably run into their situation where they like have to give tough feedback for the first time, or they just, they want to learn how to be a manager that doesn't suck basically. And I've had so many rewarding conversations with managers where we get to talk through like a hypothetical or we get to talk through a situation. We get to sort of practice a a script for here's how you might have this conversation. And you kind of get to see how it all plays out. And you get to watch the managers learn this new skill and you get to help them learn that new skill. And that is a really good feeling. Like 
Managers are such an important part of whether or not you like your job. And you'll hear a lot that people say, you know, people don't leave their jobs, they leave their managers. But unfortunately, a lot of managers don't really get trained on how to be managers. They get really good at their job. And then the way that they get promoted is they're like, you're so good at your job that now you get to manage people. And they're like, great, I've never managed people before. And I think that that's just, that's part of how a lot of workplaces are. And I think when you have the opportunity to get training around management, it can make a really big difference, you know, and you see how it impacts the team. You see the communication improve, you see the culture improve, you see the outputs improve. That's always nice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that does sound really nice. And I think that you make a good point that like it's important for managers to get trained and stuff like that, because even we see like, you know, teachers who are the managers of all the students, like it really makes a big difference. Exactly. Not you like the class, you enjoy the culture, like if you think that the work is fair or like another thing that I think is super important is like whether or not like your employees or your students like feel comfortable coming to you if they have like an issue or a problem or just kind of like creating like a good work environment, which it sounds like you're totally at your company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, what qualities do you think that the best HR professionals have? Yeah, I think it, it sort of depends on the branch of HR you want to go into. But I would say generally, you know, you have to really believe in HR. You have to have some belief that helping people have a better experience at work is important. If you don't think that that's important, don't go into a career that has the word human in it. It's pretty much my opinion about that. Mm -hmm. I think most HR professionals are good systems thinkers. They're detail oriented. They probably have a lot of patience. They tend to be great listeners because so many HR roles involve listening to manager complaints, employee complaints, leadership complaints, a lot of complaints and not necessarily even doing anything about it, but just processing it and trying to process it as fairly as possible. So I think folks who you know are interested in supporting people, who are interested in thinking about work culture, who are interested in providing the best employee experience, but who also have a knack for detail, who have a knack for being able to manage sticky situations, I think could be really strong um, in the HR field. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like you bring up a really important point is like being able to manage like tougher situations, because I think that's kind of like how it makes like a good manager or a good professional is like, you know, how you kind of handle like what bad situations get thrown your way. I kind of for my next question, segueing into that, mm -hmm. how could a high school or college student maybe explore HR or try it out like, you know, before they've kind of had any real like, you know, office experience? I think there's a couple of ways to do that. I think, uh, you know, one is, of course, to take the standard career development approach, which is to keep talking to HR professionals about the work, see if you can pick up summer work or internship opportunities that allow you to work in an HR department um, and get a feel for what what is involved in the work. I think another way to sort of think about it. This is a little bit of an odd suggestion, but it did help me a lot, which is I have one resource that I recommend to everyone when it comes to HR and the workplace. And it's a website called Ask a Manager. Allison Green is a longtime HR professional who over the last, I want to say decade, has been writing a column about basically responding to many questions submitted from people about the workplace, like all kinds of questions, like questions from like, 
how many pages should my resume be to like, I have an employee who constantly heats up salmon in our community kitchen and it stinks up the entire office. Like, how do I have a conversation with them? Just like all over the place kind of questions. If you read those questions and you're like, this is completely fascinating, you might really like HR. <laughs> and it's a really good way to start thinking about how HR professionals and managers think about things. And it can be a good way to sort of start educating yourself about a really interesting, complicated field and sort of learning, like, what are the new challenges of HR that didn't exist a few years ago without necessarily accepting a job in HR? It can be sort of a good way to learn about it and gauge your interest in it without, again, without sort of delving into a career in it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's a really good tip because I think that a lot of the things that you were mentioning, well, kind of like similar to being in a school, like you said that you kind of did a lot of learning in the job and kind of learning on past careers. So I think that that ask a manager might be a really good way for students to kind of like think about the situations, role play a little bit. And mm -hmm. yeah, so um, what advice? So I guess I just have one final question for you here. Of course. Um, so what advice would you give to someone just starting out in the HR field? I think one of the big pieces of advice I would give that I would actually give to any professional early in their career is don't get too caught up in the title or the department name or the title of your manager and really pay attention to the job description, the job requirements. And also pay attention every day to what you really loved about your day and what you truly hated because that information will help you decide what kind of career you should have, not what's in my title. Um, I meet people all the time who think that they want a job with a particular title, and then when they list out the things they don't like about their job, it is exactly the work involved in that title. And, it, and that's no way to choose a career. I think it's a lot easier to just pay attention, even if you're doing it on a weekly basis, to be like, what were the highlights of this week? And like, what filled me with dread? What did I just find tedious? What did I find annoying? What did I think I was not good at? And then when you think about your next job, when the next job comes around, look for the job that doesn't have those things and just keep doing it until you end up in what's hopefully gonna be a dream job. Um, I think that can make a really big difference instead of being like, I have to have this exact title and I have to have this exact career doesn't always work that way. There are a lot of different titles that can mean the same thing depending on the company. The second thing I would say is for an HR professional is to really um, learn as much as you can about the people who work at your workplace as possible. Learn about the culture, learn about the management styles, learn about the executive and the leadership team. Leadership teams shape the culture of a company so much and HR can create all the policies and process in the world, but it doesn't mean that much if the culture of the company works a certain way. And so knowing what what's going to work at your particular company is an important skill set to learn early on. Um, figuring out like what's the right scope, what are the right amount of rules for our company to have, it changes depending on the kind of workplace it is. You know, again, big, big companies tend to have a lot of policy and a lot of protocol because they have thousands and thousands of employees. If you're a 15 person company, you don't need a 60 page employee handbook. So figuring out what are the best practices generally, but what are the best practices that work for this particular company 
is a really good question to be asking yourself when you start off in your career. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that those are two really great pieces of advice. And the first one that you were saying about like picking out what you like and what you dislike about certain things, I think is also applicable to if you're still in school, like picking out like, oh, I really like doing my math homework, you know, maybe I should, you know, explore something with that. So yeah, I really, absolutely. Yeah, I've really enjoyed how a lot of your advice is like applicable to people who have like careers in the workforce, but also kind of like trickles down to people who are still in the education phase of their life. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's because there are a lot of parallels, you know, the things that helped me when I was a student, like paying attention to what I like and paying attention to what I don't like and trying as much as possible to avoid the things that I don't like is pretty much how I approached my career as well. And it's not everyone's path, but if it can be your path, I think it can be a really great way to go because that way you don't know where you're going to end up, but at least you enjoyed it while you were (laughs) figuring it out as opposed to, you know, trying to architect the exact right thing for yourself when you don't know what you're going to want in five years or 10 years, you might only know what you want in the next year and that's okay. So uh, finding other ways to think about what you're drawn to can give you more options down the road. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is a good place to wrap up our episode today. Nina, thank you so much for joining me. I, you had so many great tips and lots of great advice and it was such a pleasure talking to you. I'm so glad. Thanks so much, Mackenzie. I really appreciate it. A special thanks to Nina for joining me today. You can check her out on her website, www.ninajacinto.com to learn more about her career, her accomplishments, or to contact her. And you can check out this podcast on our website, www.fascinatingjobs.xyz, or on Instagram at fascinating underscore jobs underscore pod. We're also on Twitter at Fascinating Jobs. I'm always looking for fan questions, plus there's plenty of good discussion and plenty of updates about the show. Tag me with any questions or comments, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to this podcast to let me know you're enjoying it. And if you or someone you know has a fascinating job, email me at fascinatingjobspod at gmail.com for a chance to be a guest on the show. Thank you so much for listening and enjoying this podcast, and I'll see you in the next episode.